I want to say uh, good morning to our Hobart Portage campus who is joining us uh, today through our live stream. And uh, one thing we have to be thankful for as a church is this year-long experience we've had studying this wonderful letter, 1 Peter. And today we are wrapping it up. This is our last message in 1 Peter, having done an exposition through the entire letter. And I always get a little sentimental when we wrap up one of these uh, longer series, so you may hear a a little bit of that today. And what I want to do this morning is to wrap up the last verses of the letter and then pull back and just talk about some big themes that I hope linger on in uh, the years ahead from our series in 1 Peter. So we're in the last few verses here. As you read through many of the letters in the New Testament, you get to this little section, and uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, greet this person and do this and all of that and peace be with you. And we call these the salutations, okay, the salutations. We, in our letters that we write or our emails, our salutations are like sincerely or respectfully. But in the first century, they were a little more flowery with their letters, and you'll see that here in Peter's final words. So let me read the last words, uh, 1 Peter 5, verses 12 through 14. Peter writes this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The end. End of the letter. So let's just walk through uh, these final words here. He says, by Silvanus. Uh, This is uh, the Greek word or name version of the name Silas. And maybe you've never heard of Silvanus, but if you read through the book of Acts, Silas is one of these kind of B-level guys in the story. He's not Paul, he's not Peter, but he is prominent in in his own way in the story. He was a companion of Paul and of Barnabas. And Peter here writes that uh, he is with him, so apparently Silas, I'll call him Silas, it's either easier to say than Silvanus. Silas is uh, with Peter in Rome, and uh, it says here that it's by Silas. Now, what does that mean? And the people debate this, the scholars debate this, and we don't really know, other than two real possibilities. Either Silas was the amanuasis, the secretary who wrote down what Peter wanted, so it would be by the hand of Silas, I write this letter to you, or it means that Silas delivered the letter. Okay, so either of those is a possibility. I don't know which it is. When we get to heaven, let's ask him, and we'll find out. Now, Peter here says that I have written you briefly. I don't know if that stood out to any of you. I have written you Briefly, Hebrews ends with a similar uh, little clause there. He writes the whole letter of Hebrews, which is much longer than 1 Peter, and he says, I've only written briefly. And I don't know about you, but I see that kind of thing, and I think, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever in my whole life written a letter as long as 1 Peter, much less Hebrews, right? So when they get to the end, they say, I've only written you briefly, like, 
what do you mean by that, right? And so uh, it's a little cultural here. The cultural expectation in that day was that letters would be brief, okay? So have you ever gotten a text message from somebody and you get it and you're like scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and you're thinking to yourself, this isn't a text message, this is a book, right? If this person wanted to send this, send it as an email maybe or, you know, print it out and send it as a letter, but don't send this long thing as a a text. If they got to the end and they said, you know, I, I, it's, uh, this is a, a little bit long, you at least would think, okay, they're acknowledging that maybe it's a little longer. It's kind of what Peter is doing here, only the opposite of that in the sense that he's saying, I've only written you briefly. He, it's sort of a nod to the cultural expectation that the letter would be brief, even though it sounds odd to us given its length. Now, verse 13 has a few more insights into the heart and the life of Peter. He says this, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Okay, so who's the she who's at Babylon there? Is this his wife? We know Peter was married. Is it his wife? What's he talking about, or who is he talking about here? You know, when we talk about churches, we typically talk about churches as being she's, not he's, right? Have you ever wondered why? And the answer to that is that the Greek word for church is in a feminine form, and so it translates then as she. And frankly, when we understand that the church is the bride of Christ, it fits that parable that God intended with marriage, human marriage, to be a reflection of that. She who is at Babylon. So the she I'm saying is the church. Okay, it's a church. Who is at Babylon. And again, that's confusing because you're like, if you know world civilization, wait a second. This is written in the first century. Babylon was many centuries before Babylon. The Babylonians took over after the Assyrians. And King Nebuchadnezzar, for example, was a king in Babylon. But by the time you get to the first century, there is no Babylon. So who is the she who is at the city or the nation that is no longer in existence. What are you talking about here? Well, Babylon became a kind of slang term. Much like when we talk about the city of New York, we call it the what? It's the, it's the Big Apple, right? Or we talk about uh, if something is sort of glitzy or glamorous or maybe decadent, we'll say it's kind of a Vegas-style event. And we all understand what Vegas means, and we understand what New York or the Big Apple means. Babylon was at one time the center of the world. Babylon was the place of power and wealth and influence and power, and it became a kind of slang term like the Big Apple or Vegas style that was applied then to the big center of power of that day, which was the city of Rome and the Roman Empire. And that's, in fact, where Peter is when he writes the letter. So he is saying here then, she who is at Babylon, who is at Rome, sends you greetings. So the church at Rome, all of that is code for the church at Rome sends you her greetings. And I see, even in that, there's, I think, a a, a lesson for us to, to get here. The church at Rome is writing to the church at Asia Minor and is sending their greetings, And we see then that that church saw itself in a kind of fraternal relationship, or maybe in this case a sisterhood relationship, with 
that church in Asia Minor. The church at Rome wasn't just about the church at Rome. They saw a kind of care and a love and a concern for what was going on up there in Asia Minor. And Bethel Church, I think there's a lesson for that in us, for for us here. It's easy, I think, to get into the life of a church or in our church. We think about our four campuses and all the things that are going on, and we can get very parochial in our perspective and to sort of think the only thing that God's doing in Northwest Indiana must be right here at Bethel Church. When in reality, there are hundreds and hundreds of churches just here in Northwest Indiana. There's over 400 churches in the city of Gary alone. I don't know the number in Lake County or Northwest Indiana as a whole, but it's, I mean, it's probably thousands, thousands, I don't know. There are a lot of churches, and not all of them are preaching the gospel, and not all of them are believing in core doctrines that we would see as being essential to historic, orthodox Christian faith, but lots of them are. And they may have a little denominational tag on them, or they may have a little slant somehow on a secondary issue that isn't exactly the way that we view it, but they are brothers and sisters in Christ, and their church is a sisterly church to us. And for us as a church to view other churches as being on the same team and being doing kingdom work like we want and are trying to do here and to see a kind of fraternity with them is biblical New Testament Christianity and we have it right here before us. So what do you think as you drive by some church that, that isn't our church or that's in a denomination that maybe you're not exactly comfortable with? How about praying for them? That'd be a great practice for our church. As you drive by other churches, if you, if you have reasonable, you know, if you drive by the cult church, don't pray for them. Well, actually, maybe you should, that they would find the truth. I shouldn't say it that, that, that uh, quickly. But let's, let's view other churches as friends and as brothers and as family and to be for what God's doing at their church. And let's, again, another call for us from the pulpit in our, at our campuses to pray for other churches by name, and to pray that God would bless them, even as we want God to bless us here. Amen? Amen. Let's be that kind of church. The church of Babylon sends their greetings. And then he says, and so does Mark, my son. Mark. Now, who is Mark in the story? And all of a sudden, again, here, we're on a pretty big-name guy, Mark. Mark, if you know the story, if you read through Acts, Mark was a young man who traveled with Paul and Barnabas, but at some point in the journey, he abandoned them. From Paul's perspective, he deserted them. And Paul and Barnabas uh, went on their own, but Barnabas had a heart for Mark and wanted to have him join the team again. Paul didn't want anything to do with it. He's like, man, that guy deserted us once. We're not going to have him back again. And Paul and Barnabas, these great heroes of the faith, they have a split in their relationship over this guy, Mark, that's in front of us. Well, story goes on. There's finally a reconciliation and everything's restored and everything's good. And we find that Mark aligns with Peter. And prominently in the story, we have four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Mark that we're talking about here is the Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark. And most scholars believe that Mark wrote that gospel basically sharing the perspective of Peter, reflecting on Peter's experience with Jesus. 
And Mark, again, most scholars believe Mark was the first gospel that was written and shaped the outline and the content of Matthew and Luke. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all shaped around this guy Mark's account of the life of Jesus from the words of Peter himself. And so they were very close. Peter here calls him my son. I don't know how many people you call your son, but if you roll that title out, it's somebody that's close to you. And so Peter and Mark were close to one another. Verse 12, I have written briefly to you, we talked about that, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Here we have Peter's, he's summarizing everything that he said. He said, you know what I've done in this letter? I have declared to you the truth and I have exhorted you regarding the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace that comes to us with no merit, no favor earned by us, no following the law, no performance. It is purely salvation by grace alone from the loving kindness of God who decides out of that love to bestow upon us grace and salvation. None of us deserve it. Nobody here in this church, these people that are baptized, and by the way, wasn't that awesome? HP, we uh, <laughs> baptized four guys, you know, international flavor, four men. And I love seeing men. It's great to see women, don't get me wrong, okay? And children, praise God for that. Great to see men taking spiritual steps of faith in the church. Love to see that. So I lost my train of thought even just reflecting on the baptism. But the, 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 did, did anyone get in the baptism waters and say, you know what, I deserve this. <laughs> you know, it's about time God saved me and realized who I am. You know, so, no, the, the act of baptism itself is a reminder that it is God's grace to us through the work of Jesus on the cross. And so salvation, totally by grace, undeserved. And what Peter is talking about here is how easy it is for us to get that at the beginning of the Christian life, and then somewhere along the way to think, I'm not saved by grace, or I don't need that grace, I need something else. Or to depart from that grace. Here's, here's what Paul writes in Galatians 1.6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, what was going on in Galatians is they had received salvation. They had put their trust and faith in Jesus. But somewhere along the way, they decided that Jesus' death was not all that they needed. They needed to obey that Old Testament law. They were going to a different gospel. They started in grace, but they weren't standing in grace. They weren't staying in grace. And Peter is saying, what I've exhorted you here with all this talk about trials and suffering and how to live in a secular world and maintain your witness and everything that I've said here, I basically have just been talking about the grace of God and your need to stay in that grace and to not depart to some other sort of way of thinking or think that it depends on you ultimately at any point in the story. It is all the grace of God to us. I see that sometimes as people receive the grace of God. They start in grace. They don't stand in grace. And 
somehow begin to hope in other things. They hope in their money. They hope in their uh, intelligence. They, they turn towards some, you know, uh, thing that is their comfort and is their hope. They're not standing in, they started in grace, but they're not standing in grace. I have to continually remind myself every day, I need the grace of God today. I remain a Christian today by the grace of God. And to lean and depend upon him. I'd illustrate it this way. If you've ever been to like a big mall in Chicago or a major airport, uh, you know that they oftentimes use these big escalators, right, to help get people around. And you know what an escalator is. I assume all of us know what an escalator is, where you, you get on the escalator, and what do you do to get to the top? You just stand there, right? <laughs> you just stand there. And that escalator takes you all the way. If you've ever been to an airport, though, you, all, you know that there's another group of people, and these are the people that, they sort of look at the escalator people, they, they put their nose down at the escalator people. They're like uh, fitness gurus, or they're in a hurry, they want to show the schleps who are uh, going on the escalator, this is how it's really done, you know. And so they go up the stairs, which are always right next to the escalator. They climb the stairs on their own. Human effort. So what Peter is saying here is, yes, you started in the escalator and you realize it is God's strength that is taking you there. Don't jump the rail onto the stairs somehow along the way and think, now I'm going to do it on my own. Now it's about me. Stand in grace every day. It is amazing to us, the grace of God to save a wretch like me. And to embrace that truth and to live it. Live it every day and to continue in God's strength, not our own. I have no clever transition for the next verse. Greet one another with a holy kiss, or I should say the kiss of love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. This is a command that the church is called to do, and we should put God's commands into practice, don't you think? So right now, I'm asking everybody to stand, okay? Everybody stand up. Here we go. Obey your pastor. It's in First Peter somewhere. <laughs> HP, I'm talking to you right now too, all right? I want you all standing over there. Okay, here's a command of Scripture. We're called to love one another. So what I want you to do is Right now, I want you, on the count of three, to turn and with all the Christian love in your heart to person probably behind you, your spouse does not count in this, okay? <laughs> with all the Christian love in your heart, I want you to turn to the person near, around, or behind you right now and vigorously shake their hands. Go ahead and do that. Would you do that right now? Thank you. Did you feel the collective relief <laughs> in the whole congregation? All right, you can sit down now. Like, 
Wow, we dodged a bullet there. (laughs) This is one of those fun verses in the Bible, isn't it? And it's not the only one. You might say, well, we've taken this out of context. This is repeated. Let me give you some examples. 1 Thessalonians 5.26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, and Romans 16.16, greet one another with a holy kiss. And here, Peter calls it the kiss of love. So what are all of those all about? And why do I feel so strangely uncomfortable reading them? Well, this has to do with culture, okay? Culture and love, culture and love. If you've traveled much, had the opportunity to go to another culture, you probably have been uh, surprised, maybe you thought it was cute or something, but you're like, wow, that's different than the way that we sort of do things here. And this includes just Southern Indiana. Um, I'm kidding. Um, For example, years ago, we did a trip, our church did a trip to Israel, and some of us went on a little thing in in Egypt. And so we get to Cairo, and uh, we went walking around, and the the men are all holding hands with each other, the women are holding hands with each other, and we're kind of like, wow, that's different, you know, arm in arm type, you know, through the arm type of thing. And, uh, and they kiss in Egypt. They kiss. And it was explained to us, it's even more complicated than that, because in Egypt, you have upper Egypt and there's lower Egypt. And the kissing practice is entirely different in those two parts of the country. One, I don't remember which is which, but one, you kiss one cheek, other cheek, and then that's it. And then the other one, you kiss cheek, cheek, cheek. And apparently, it is highly offensive if you kiss the wrong way in the wrong area. So you have to know, okay, where are we at now? Upper, okay, this is the three-kiss place, and to keep that all straight. As one example, I've been in other places where their expressions physically are similar. Lots of kissing. Very common. And... That was what was go- that was what it was like in the first century that Peter is writing. Kissing was a culturally acceptable way to show affection, like brotherly, sisterly type affection. The kissing was on the cheek. It was always like man to man and woman to woman. It was never on the lips. It was not erotic. So we think about our culture. And obviously, we're not as much a kissy-type culture, right? Uh, But what do we do? We shake hands. We may do a a man hug, you know, kind of that, "Mm." (laughs) We do the side hugs, right? Side hug, good to see you. If somebody uh, greets you at church with a full front hug, that's awkward, right? It's awkward. Somebody kissed you, probably awkward, okay? Probably awkward. Because it's not as much our culture. So we have to take that principle and apply it in our culture and in our appropriately culturally expressed ways. The truth behind this, though, is not your kissing or your hugging. The truth behind it is that we have a responsibility to love one another deeply. Peter has said this 
in 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now we could say, okay, if that's true in a local church, then what does it feel like when you visit that church? What does it feel like when you are hanging out in that church? You know, does it feel like uh, tea at Downton Abbey? You know, oh, so good to see you, my dear chap, you know. They're like that. Is that, are we all formal and stiff and, you know, just kind of mm, like that? I don't think so. Not when there is love down here. And that's the key. He's not saying, okay, charade it, make believe that you actually love one another, pretend and kiss each other. No. What he is saying here is love deeply here and then physically express it appropriately out here. And that in the church, a level of physical expression is not only appropriate, it is commanded. It is commanded. We have a family in our church, their last name is Kissy. Imagine what it's like to go to their house for Thanksgiving when their name is Kissy. And I told them I might mention that in my message today. And they're actually at the HP campus. Shout out to you right now. So how do we do this? Okay, how do we do this? May I offer some practical suggestions? And you might be saying to yourself, uh, yes, Pastor Steve, please draw some lines. I don't like how the person next to me is looking at me right now, okay? So in our culture, we are less about the kiss of love than we are the handshake of love or the fist bump of love or the side hug of love. But part of love is taking the other person's feelings into mind. Story, legendary story in my family growing up, in my church that I grew up in, there was one guy, he was a little mentally off, everybody knew it, everyone you know, cared for him and everything all the same, but one day my mom was at the grocery store, and she's in the aisle, and this guy comes down the aisle all of a sudden right to her, and he went walking right up to her, kissed her square on the lips. <laughs> my mom. I don't think my mom's licked her lips since, honestly. <laughs> shocked her. What's wrong with that? Lots of things, but was he taking her feelings into account? Not at all. Not at all. I'll tell you that I've had lots of awkward moments. Can I say that? Over the years, okay? So just say over the years, I've had many awkward moments where sisters in the church have decided to show Physical uh, appreciation. I'm saying this wrong, actually. Um, I really am. How about if I read what I wrote? This is what I wrote when I had time to really think about it. I've had plenty of awkward moments, especially with dear sisters in the church who want to give the pastor a hug and do so a little, with a little more closeness than I would want. Okay, how's that? That better? All right. 
So how about this as a, a parameter for us? What would you do with your biological brother or sister? You know, like my, with my brother, I'm like, Scotty. Okay. Or with my sister, I'll give her a hug and, you know, we, we're physical like that. Now, am I going to do a full frontal hug with my sister? Probably not, okay, because she would take me down if I did, probably. <laughs> so think about your brothers and sisters here. How can you, in a, with love in your heart, truly, respecting them as a brother or sister, appropriately show a level of physical affection? We ought to be a church, not like the Downton Abbey tea, but like the, the Kissy family at Thanksgiving, where there is a sense, if people come here, like, oh, those people really like each other. I can just sit in the comments and I can tell that these people, you know, they like each other. And in a large church, it's hard for you to even know the person sitting next to you, okay? But all of us should be in a context where there are people that we're loving deeply, don't you think? A small group, a shared ministry of some kind that where you know them, they know you, and you're caring for one another. And in that context especially, there ought to be a sense, even physically, that we care for one another. Okay? So, to that end, I would say that some of you need to ramp this up a bit. Some of you are as cold as the other side of the pillow, and you haven't touched a fellow Christian since the flu bug of 84, okay? <laughs> and when you do, you're like, antibacterial soap, antibacterial soap. You need to ramp it up some. Do the people that hang out with you get a sense that you love them? Ramp it up. Honestly, some of you could tone it down. <laughs> and you know who you are. Or maybe you don't, and we'll need to tell you later. But do you see the kind of affectionate church context that we should be free to, to do this if we love one another? And that's the key. Love here, shown express, uh, expressed appropriately out here. All right, final thoughts on First Peter. Final thoughts. I have two themes in First Peter that I hope linger on for many years ahead in our church. Here's the first one. We've seen it over and over and over again in this letter, and it has to do with trials and pain, and suffering. Peter has exhorted us to view these things as good things and to embrace the good that God intends from them. None of us like trials. I don't like trials. I don't like pain. I'm not looking for them. I'm not praying for them. God bring trials into my life. But what happens without praying? Like the weeds, they just show up, don't they? Trials and suffering shows up. And for us to train our minds and our hearts of faith to see them for what God intends them to be is what keeps us from running from them or being bitter about them, but to embrace them. 
Here's what Peter wrote in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying there? We rejoice, but for a little while here, this little sojourn on earth, we're going to have all kinds of trials that we have to deal with. What can I look at my trial like? I can look at it like a refinement to my faith, which is more valuable than gold or silver, and to then embrace the good things that God intends from it. This doesn't mean that we embrace the evil. Sometimes suffering comes to us because of evil in this world. We don't sanction the evil. We don't call the evil good. The evil is evil. But we see by faith and believe when we can't see that God is doing something good through that. That though, this, uh, though the wrong seemed off so strong, God is the ruler yet. That he is the sovereign God even over the evil and over the trial. And sovereignly is always working in that pain to produce something in me that conforms me more to the likeness of Jesus Christ, which as a Christian is the big thing that we want in our life. And for our congregation to have a theology of pain and suffering, when life's good, because it's not going to always be good, and now I'm ready to walk by faith and not by sight in that painful trial that God brings to me. That is one thing Peter exhorts us over and over and over again. And one of the responsibilities of a pastor is to prepare his people to suffer. So that when I come walking into your hospital room, you don't have a look of shock on your face. Like, I never thought anything bad would ever happen to me. Bad is going to happen. Pain is going to happen. Bad health diagnosis is going to happen. We all die in the end. Did you know that? Okay. Things happen in this world that disappoint us. Things happen in our families and with our loved ones that are so very painful. There is betrayal in this world. And to understand this is the fallen world that God is saving us out from. And that we are going to experience these hard things, but God is the ruler yet. And to see and trust and believe that God has good from it. We need to be ready for it. Peter has done that. I found myself, you know, this year, and, you know, I... The big thing I'll remember this year, I hope, is the worst thing that happens to us is what we went through with our daughter, Madeline. Right when we're talking about suffering and all of this, we're going through that experience and, you know, how helpful it is to know that God is using it for good. As Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. <laughs> even the devil is God's devil. There is a sovereign ruler over everything. Nothing will happen to me apart from his sovereign hand, and I can trust him, okay? So get ready, okay? Get ready. Let this theology, truth, live in your heart 
so that this week, I mean, who, all these people here, somebody's going to have something really bad happen this week in this room. It might be me. Am I ready to embrace that suffering, believing that God is still good no matter what? That's how we get ready for it. And Peter has called us to that. And I hope that lingers on. Because I don't know what the future holds, except I know there's pain ahead. There is pain ahead. And the second truth, I've just called Bethel Church, keep it weird. Okay? (laughs) Bethel Church, keep it weird. And what I mean by this is that we have experienced over the last whatever you want to say, decades, even two centuries here in Western America, Western civilization America, we've experienced a certain cultural privilege with our Christianity. Our country affords us a certain cultural privilege. Here we are, right? We're having a worship service. We're in a building that our church owns. We're a tax-exempt organization. There's still a certain thing that people, when they die or marry, want to have Christianity in a church thing and a pastor and a preacher and all that. There's a, there's a certain cultural privilege that we have experienced here in America. And so when we have, and we're in a, we're in a, when we're in a place of majority or privilege, a truth like keep it weird seems itself to be weird. But as our culture continues its slide, apart from a revival in America, as our culture continues to slide more and more into a secular perspective, more and more into a godless worldview, authentic Christianity is going to increasingly seem strange. And the things that we believe are increasingly going to feel in the culture like weirdness. And that could be any number of things. We believe that the world was created and we have a certain view on marriage and we practice a certain sexual ethic and we have a perspective about the future that involves Jesus coming back. And these core Orthodox Christian truths that Christians for 2,000 years have believed in America have been somewhat privileged. Increasingly, we are in the minority and you might say, this is terrible. And sometimes you read the Facebook posts and you see people are like throwing their, you know, it's a sackcloth and ashes about the, the direction that our country is going. And yet, according to 1 Peter, what we see lying ahead with this might be the best days of the church this country has ever had. And the reason that I say that is that Christianity is by design in a fallen world supposed to be strange. And as we increasingly are different, now the real power of Christianity shines through. This is the story of history. This is the first three centuries of the church. Turn the world upside down, not by being the majority, but by being the fringe, by being the marginalized, by being the minority. I like what Walker uh, Walker Percy says, by remaining faithful to its original commission, by serving its people with love, especially the poor, the lonely, and the dispossessed, and by not surrendering its doctrinal steadfastness, sometimes even the very contradiction of culture by which it serves as a sign, surely the church serves the culture best. It's like, I I would draw this analogy, it's like the moon. 
When does the moon shine the brightest? Is it during the day when there's lots of other light all around, all around? You don't even notice the moon during the daytime. But as it gets darker and darker and darker, all of a sudden, that moon shines brighter and brighter and brighter. And in reality, is there more light coming from the moon in the nighttime than in the, sun, in the, in the daytime? No, it's the same amount of light. What is changing? It's context. And as that context gets darker and darker, the real glory of the moon shines brighter and brighter, and the church is like that. We are not at our best when every congressman is having a, a daily devotional and, the, and Billy Graham's the president of the United States, as much as some people would like that. When we are the majority, now the church compromises and conforms. But when we are the minority, now the real glory of the church shines through. I read an article quickly that, uh, by Pat Carter where he argues for the way the church should focus its efforts in the years ahead, given where our culture is. He takes all the principles from 1 Peter. He lists 10. I just want to read them to you. Don't exaggerate cultural opposition. Be active and obvious in doing good. Do not be afraid. Set apart Christ as Lord. It's about Jesus, who he was, what he did, why it matters. Inspire questions. Be gentle and respectful. Endure slander and mischaracterization, whatever that word is. Uh, keep your conduct honorable. Honor everyone. And his point here is that in a non-Christian or an anti-Christian environment, that kind of lifestyle and expression in the church and in Christians will increasingly seem weird, but it will seem weird in an intriguing way. If we conform to the, to the uh, culture, nobody's interested in us. We're just the same as everything else. But if we are different, and if we are different biblically, I'm not talking about being weird, just like, you know, bad breath and being obnoxious and all of that. I'm talking about living authentically Christian, biblical, historic Christianity. That kind of cultural weirdness serves the church well. So we need to keep our Christianity weird in Northwest Indiana. This is like the Christian wife in chapter 3, who is married to the unbelieving husband. And Peter writes to her and says, here's what I think you ought to do. I think you need to live your Christianity in front of him day after day after day in a way that will make him, even though he disagrees with your Christianity, he thinks you're a nut job because of your Christianity, as he sees the reality up close in his own home, it will spur questions in his heart and in his life. When Christianity is weird, it is powerful. Like the woman I told the story, her husband, married 40, 50 years, her husband was an anti-Christian, mean guy. He was on his deathbed. The family calls me in. You know the story. I go walking in. He is not happy to see me. He is rude to me. I got in his face and I said, let me tell you something. You're about to die and go to hell. And you can deny Christianity all you want, but you can't deny it in the life of your wife, 
who was standing on the other side of the bed stroking his hand like this, very sort of sweet old lady like this stroking his hand. And he looked me in the eye and he was mad as he could almost spit on me, I think. But he turned his head and he looked to his wife and his features softened and he said, yep, you're right. She's one fine cookie. And as we live in this community and we seek to love this community, And we do so by simply loving our spouse and remaining faithful to covenant vows. Talk about weird. Or as we love throwaway children in our community and care for them, dropping off 450 coats at the school, seeking to find people that are on the fringe as well that we can care for as we deal honestly in business, as we practice a Christian sexual ethic before marriage and in marriage, as we care for our neighbor in ways that we don't call the paper to announce, it's all weird in a world without God. But it says something powerful, doesn't it? Would that in the years ahead, this community would look at Bethel Church and say, they're weird, but they're one fine cookie. They're one fine cookie. So my final word on First Peter is Bethel Church, keep it weird. Keep it weird. Amen? Amen. And that's First Peter. Praise God.